0: Welcome to Inspiring Futures, I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what and why of the future. Welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Um, today, um, I'm excited that Frank Rose is uh, my guest. Frank has been on the show, I think before. I think you were one of, certainly one of my earlier guests, um, back when this thing was was starting out a couple of years ago. Um, and I, I won't, um, you know, preempt your introduction. Um, but what I will say is, um, you know, a lot about story, um, having uh, been a journalist um, and um, teaching uh, storytelling at Columbia. As a senior fellow there, and um, also being the author of a of a brand new book uh, called "The Sea We Swim In," um, which i I love the I love the title. But um, just to explain a little bit more how stories work in a data driven world. Um, so, uh, Frank, welcome to uh, Inspiring Futures.
1: Thanks, Chad. Great to be here.
0: So, if we could start off, and just uh, if you could give us a very short, I know. Uh, you have a long-storied uh, career. Um, if you give us a very uh, accelerated, uh, fast-forward um, view of uh, of where you've been and what took, took, took you to where you are today, that would be brilliant.
1: Sure. Well, actually, I started out in the 70s as a music writer for The Village Voice. I uh, sort of covered the punk scene at CBGB and profiled people like Brian Eno and so forth. Eventually, I uh, kind of, you know, graduated to, um, you know, monthly glossy magazines like Esquire and uh, and so forth. I've done several books along the way. In the late '90s, I was a contributing writer at Fortune, and uh, after a couple of years there. I moved to Wired where I was a contributing editor for 10 years from about 1999 to 2009 and along the way I had written a lot about entertainment about media about the media business and also a lot about technology I sort of started off writing about technology in the in the early 80s at a time when uh, you know if you were if you knew what a floppy disk was uh, you were a technology expert and uh, so that was, uh, you know, it was a fairly low bar. But as I got more and more into it, uh, you know, Wired was kind of the perfect place to be because I could write about basically what was happening at the intersection of media and technology. So it sort of brought everything together for me. After a while there, though, I realized that the way we were changing, I'm sorry, I realized that the way people were telling stories was changing and that it was changing in response to technology and this kind of fascinated me so i i ultimately i left wired i wrote a book called the art of immersion which is essentially an exploration of that idea what i realized along the way is that every time there's a new uh, medium a new medium of communication that comes along whether it's television or movies or you know to go way back to printing to press. It takes people at least 30 or 40 years, often much longer, to figure out what to do with it, You know, to come up with a, a form of communication with a form of storytelling that's native to that medium. This led ultimately to my uh, uh, coming to Columbia. I'm, as you mentioned, a senior fellow at the School of the Arts there. And I lead an executive education program called Strategic Storytelling that's presented Uh, by the School of the Arts in partnership with Columbia Business School. And that's been a completely fascinating experience. But among other things, it led to uh, basically it led to this book, which started out as a, uh, you know, sort of as a a toolkit, a short toolkit for people who took the course. And then I realized that, uh, you know, it it could be quite a bit more than that. So,
0: um, what what do you see as the big? Do, do you see sort of um, these big jumps in the way the internet has, because the internet's clearly played a significant role in storytelling. And yes. what do you what do you think what do you think that role has been? You know you go back in time to the era of Dickens and these, these sort of phenomena about, you um, see it was writing these chapters and they were being sort of mailed out and there was people would clamor for this work and they would wait. You know, now we've got the opposite of that. We've got immediacy. We've got instantaneous stories and we've got the hyper... Um, multiplication or amplification of stories like we've never never seen before for both good and bad
1: yes so well that's a that's a really really interesting question and and it's one I've spent quite a lot of time exploring the the, the idea of dickens i mean in one sense you're entirely right you know the immediacy that we have now is quite the opposite of of you know what uh, you know what existed in in dickens's time but in another way uh, they're actually quite similar because the idea of uh, telling a story in chapters that are released over a period of time allows for a kind of feedback that doesn't exist with a printed book and uh, in fact, there was a, a, a kind of a fascinating lecture that was delivered at uh, Columbia many years ago called, When is a Book Not a Book? And it was a, a, by a Dickens expert looking at uh, the serial storytelling of authors like Dickens, and uh, which in fact was pretty common in the 19th century. And his point was that when stories get put between two hard covers uh, essentially they're frozen and they're not um uh you know they they're not living anymore in the same way that they are when they're uh you know when there's room for feedback and dickens got a lot of feedback from his readers and in many cases he responded to it quite directly so you know i think that's one of the most important things about the internet and about what it has done with storytelling how it's affected storytelling the idea that you have essentially you know stories that not only unfold over time which is what stories do but that the readers can and and viewers or whatever can interact with directly Uh, you know, whether it's in the form of something like fan fiction or, uh, you know, whether it's, um, uh, you know, more directed uh, forms of interaction like you get with, uh, you know, certain television shows and movies that are, you know, that have extensions online that, um, you know, that that are deliberately set up to to encourage the kind of interaction. Uh, You know, either way, it's crucially important, I think, that people be able to interact with stories. And what has happened with the internet is that it's made it obvious what should have been apparent all along, which is that the the form of storytelling that prevailed in the, uh, let's say industrial era, which is to say most of the 20th century, is quite artificial you know, it's when we were expected to sit there and passively consume a story, whether it was a newspaper article or a television show or a movie, uh, or for that matter, um, a record, a music record, you were expected to just sit there and, and, uh, you know, consume it. And that's not how people work. That's not how the brain works. And a really fascinating development sort of parallel development to the internet has been the rise of neuroscience and specifically the interest among neuroscientists to explore storytelling and story and how stories work, how they work in the brain. So what they've found to, you know, summarize (laughs) uh, uh, what they've found essentially is that we process stories by imaginatively projecting ourselves into them. And this process of, of projection is essentially, it's been called co-creation. And I think that's a pretty good term. Uh, you know, we, we don't consume stories, we uh, co-create them in partnership with the author. And that's a really key, uh, uh, a, a really key understanding. And it applies as much in Dickens's time as it does in our own. It was really the intervening hundred years or so that uh, sort of uh, you know when people and the media business in particular uh sought to uh to sort of obviate that
0: i mean it, it it's sort of this this truism you know with with a lot of things that you know we're trying to find out you know it's um we're trying to find ourselves in the work, or we're trying to find a strand that connects us. You know, I think whether you're talking about art or a novel or a movie, um, they all kind of work around a similar dimension that you're trying to, you're trying to, this, the power is in the ability of the creator to bring, to draw that audience, that individual into the narrative. Uh, It's it's often the difference between an amazing work of art and a mediocre work of art or a brilliant novel and an average novel, um, how successfully the creator can draw the audience in. And so that seems to me just, it's always been there. That's always been a requirement. And now we've got this other layer, which is, um, okay. Now we, as you said, I thought we're really, not, I, I'm going to butcher your quote, but the covers have come off, and sort of it's a bit of a bit of a free for all, and there's expectation that you're a contributor. So I think we've sort of gone from like, and I think it still exists, the core foundation, which is you've got to have something that resonates that has has emotional power as you said the neuroscientists say we've got to see ourselves in the work and now we have these platforms where we can you know create or co-create not just in our minds but within another media as well and i think that's just that's a really interesting dynamic and I remember, I, mean, I remember years ago, Lost was one of the first, I'm sure there are multiple examples, but I thought Lost was a really a great example of a show that deliberately kind of understood this and was like putting in Easter eggs and knew that they could play around with plots and subplots and characters and that these would be debated and discussed online. And that was very much part of the kind of... Um, uh rich um stickiness of the show that people would would engage uh through these easter eggs so i i was just saying that i think there's sort of this core fundamental truths that have existed through time that are between the, the relationship between the creator and the audience or the individual and now this almost concentric circle out which is what happens next how do you how, how how does the audience co-create create reinterpret reapply uh, which is kind of like the meme meme culture
1: yes meme culture of course is totally fascinating but no you're absolutely right it uh, 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 sort of the idea of the concentric circle around the story is uh that's a very good analogy uh to me it's um It's it's created a different kind a different form of immersion. You know, there's always been this sort of uh, you know very traditional uh, involuntary uh, way of immersing yourself in a story, which is you know you're reading a novel on a train, say, and and you forget to get off at your stop. I mean that's sort of the classic, right? And you know that that still exists whether you know it's a novel or a movie or a television show or whatever uh you know there's there's that sense of you you know if you're in a movie theater and the lights come up you're suddenly you know disoriented because you've been in this completely other world but the idea that you that there's a basically a second form of immersion which is really engagement active engagement and the sort of thing that you're talking about um you know that's new but it 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 too has its um, antecedents i mean fan fiction existed long before the internet Uh, it was just more or less invisible and so therefore authors publishers didn't pay very much attention to it you know, unless you were part of that subculture, it wasn't something that you were actively, you know, even going to be aware of. A really good example, I think, is, um, is Sherlock Holmes. I mean, the Sherlock Holmes stories were written between the early 1890s and 1930, when Arthur Conan Doyle died. And, uh, after he died, there was this, in both the US and the UK, there were these uh, sort of fan communities that were formed that uh, sort of promulgated this fiction that the stories were true. And that, you know, uh, in fact, uh, Watson, you know, Sherlock Holmes did Sidekicks was, uh, you know, a, the The person who wrote the stories down, and that Conan Doyle was actually just his literary agent, and uh, you know they went to amazing lengths to sort of you know square the many uh, contradictions in the stories because Arthur Conan Doyle wasn't really very careful about you know what he did with his characters, uh, and. Uh, uh, you know, but this this fiction continued for, for years and continues to this day. So, uh, you know, stories have always drawn people in in that way. I think what's new now, as you say, basically, is that people are being deliberately drawn in as opposed to, uh, you know, it just sort of happens. Yeah.
0: Which takes us takes us on a little bit to, I mean, in one way, we could, you know, people talk about right now being the golden age of television. And, um, you know, the fact there is so much high quality content and there is so much good writing everywhere that we must be also in similar time, you know, we must be in the golden age of storytelling. Um, this thing that never existed before, binge watching the desire to just consume a massive amount of content, sort of an accelerated experience through a story. Um, You know, these are, these are, do you think it's the golden age of storytelling right now?
1: (laughs) I think it's certainly uh, a golden age for television and, but I'm, I'm totally fascinated by how and why that's developed if you think about it you know television and movies have really sort of switched places uh, you know it used to be obviously that television was a lowest common denominator form of entertainment uh, you know the the rule was you had to explain everything uh, it had to be understandable uh, you know consumable shall we say by absolutely anyone and uh, movies were quite the opposite uh, you know movies could be esoteric, they could be, you know, intellectual, perhaps, Uh, they could, uh, you know, appeal to, you know, relatively smaller numbers of people. And what's happened in the last 20, 30 years is that movies and television have changed places. And the reason for that is, uh, well, twofold. In the, with the movies, the reason for that is the rise of the international box office. Uh, You know, as recently as 20 years ago, the take for Hollywood movies outside North America, which in their parlance means the U.S. and Canada, uh, the take for movies outside North America was completely negligible. Now it's, uh, you know, like at least 75 percent of, of, you know, the money that comes in, comes in from outside uh, North America, which is to say largely uh, from outside English-speaking countries. That means that there's a language barrier that you know was fairly negligible before, and that means that certain kinds of uh, certain kinds of storytelling work, uh, you know, when there's a language barrier, and certain kinds don't. Uh, so obviously, you know, action, um, you know, comics, that sort of thing, it, uh, you know, it doesn't require. Uh, a, a very good command of English in order to, uh, you know, understand it. Um, whereas humor, you know, humor doesn't travel. That's you know, a, a sort of a, a basic axiom. Uh, but also, uh, you know, more kind, of, you know, sort of drawing room comedies, uh, you know, uh, that sort of thing. Um, uh, stories that rely a lot on dialogue um you know those sorts of movies are less and less being made uh they are being more and more made uh on television and, and you know that is told as stories on television as you know either a limited series or uh you know extended series and lost was really the show that broke the mold uh you know that that there had been a trend for quite some time since the 1980s toward, well, away from the lowest common denominator form of storytelling on television. There was, you know, the idea that the story had to be wrapped up in a half hour or an hour, um, and, uh, and, and that anybody had to be able to understand it. Uh, it happened in the 80s with Hill Street Blues. Uh, it happened in the in the '90s, with uh, you know, with with other shows like NYPD Blue, uh, but then Lost was the first show that just you know assumed that they could do anything and you'd figure it out. And there's a huge influence on uh, of video games there. Uh, you know, it's a it's a really uh, you know it speaks to a generation that grew up playing video games where you're thrown into uh, a scenario thrown into an environment, uh, thrown into a story and you have to, you know, more or less in the middle of it and you have to figure it out and figure out how to interact with it. Um, but um, but it also uh, speaks to the internet because it kind of assumes, and I'm, I'm not even sure if this was deliberate originally on, on the part of the, the showrunners, um, Carlton Hughes and, and Damon Lindelof, uh, but it uh, it very much assumes that if you don't know what's going on you're just gonna you know google it and uh, and figure it out and that in turn has led to i think what we're you know what we now talk about with the golden age of television it means that there's incredible possibilities for you know very sophisticated forms of storytelling uh, that uh, never existed on television before and you know, I think binge watching is interesting, but it's basically a subset of that.
0: So, so now, now we're in a, now we're in a situation where we've got um, everyone switching to streaming. From you know, the 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 incumbent broadcasters, you know, going to 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 non ad supported. I mean, that's really the 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 reason why. I mean, television writing was subservient to advertising. Um, you know, it, it, back in the, the, the dawn of broadcast television, it was about actually writing shows that were paid for by the soap companies, the soap operas, right? So that's right. where it started. And now we've got a situation where it's about subscription model. We don't need the advertisers anymore. We just we're relying on subscriptions. So what re- what becomes really quite fascinating is the places where brand the, the, the environments where brands used to tell their stories, have sort of a diminishing um they're being sort of kicked off these uh um areas where we spend a ton of time and where we watch other people's stories and they're sort of forced to think again really about what stories they tell where they tell them and how they tell them
1: yes yes exactly and I think that, I mean, there's an inevitability to that. Uh, a lot of it, of course, has to do with technology. Uh, you know, frankly, I don't think many people ever like the idea of having their, you know, TV shows interrupted by by ads. And, uh, you know, in the last, uh, you know, I don't know, 20 years or so, 20, 30 years, the, uh amount of advertising in a show uh, in the us at least just grew and grew and grew to the point where you know it's eight minutes out of every 30 and there's only 22 minutes left for the story and of course it's broken up uh so i think uh you know th- that sort of created a situation where uh, uh, you know advertising kind of shot itself in the foot so to speak uh, but there was also I think the fact that, um, you know, there's also obviously you're very much aware of this the the evolution of advertising from, you know, trying to make a a a point, trying to make a logical argument, uh, you know, which was the epitome of the. Uh, you know the idea of the unique selling proposition, the USP, the people like rosser Reeves in the 50s and very early 60s, um, and 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 understanding that that really doesn't work, that people don't think that way, uh, and that stories are a more a much more effective means of a drawing people in and b changing their attitudes and and opinions about. You know things in the world, uh, and and that's a big uh, impetus behind the program that I do at Columbia: strategic storytelling. This idea that uh, you know, contrary to everything we've been taught, stories are far more effective than arguments at changing people's opinions, at influencing how people think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think. I think what's interesting is you know as you as, as you said uh, I think I think Mad Men does a really good job of, of, of explaining the transition from of the left brain USP to the to the Freudian um, <laughs> emotionally driven model. You know, you, you are what you put in your tank, kind of you know emotional model where where suddenly. Um, you know the the 60s we um you know we're 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 buying things because we identify with them and the advertising is really explaining to us and making the connection of 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 what that brand does in terms of my own self-identity um and that's the golden age of advertising i mean that's you know i'd like to teach the world to sing coca-cola which is actually the the end of the End of the bag. Right. Um, and you know we've now we now got this really interesting uh, time where um, we've got all kinds of dynamics going on with brands, um, you know, from the sort of uh, the very data-driven, um, you know, almost the the digital, the digital world of uh, search, Um, my intent, I want to go on vacation, Um, you know, being sort of a a left brain, almost a rational kind of thing. And then this this desire for these brands to tell stories. And I I know we've witnessed um, a whole new generation of brands come to being in this, with the millennial generation, this of, uh, we're not your parents' brands. <laughs> um, right. You know, we, you know, whether it's the Warby Parker's or um, um, the Ubers or whoever, you know, that the the digital transformers, they cut out the middleman. They're there to do something different, and they. You know what? What do you what do you think about these folk and and their approach to to storytelling and how critical that is for their brands?
1: Yeah, I think it's um, I think it is totally critical, and uh, you know, two of the case studies that I use in force and they also figure rather prominently in the book are Warby Parker and Harry's. Uh, Harry's, of course, being formed sort of you know out of Warby Parker, as I'm sure you know, Warby was founded by four MBA students at Wharton uh, around um, 2010 or so. And uh, a couple of years later, one of them, Jeff Rader, joined forces with somebody else to, uh, as they put it, uh, do a Warby on Gillette, uh, the uh, the shaving company, the company that at that time controlled 75% of the market for men's shaving equipment and so forth in, in the US. has gone down dramatically since then. Uh, so, uh, you know, Warby was fascinating to me because they they totally understood storytelling. They totally understood that that was a way to communicate to their fans. And this is the brand that had fans, not just customers, which is a, a really critical distinction. Uh, and and that stories, you know, would enable them not just to communicate, but to, you know, form a bond. Uh, One of my favorite things about Warby um, is the class trip, right? So in, I think after they'd been around for about a year or two, they, uh, working with, um, with Andy Spade, the um, uh, husband of Kate Spade and the, you know, person who along with her had created that brand about 10 years, uh, well, no, um, quite a bit, about 15 or 20 years earlier, Um, you know, working with uh, Andy Spade uh, and his um, consulting firm, Partners in Spade, they bought an old school bus, they tore out the inside of it, they, uh, you know, put in a, A combination library and eyeglasses shop. And they drove it around the country for about a year. I think that, you know, they left New York with their headquarters. They started off in, uh, in, uh, I think Nashville was maybe their first stop. They drove all around the country, stopping in, you know, large cities, small cities, and, uh, you know, hooking up with with people that they knew who were big fans of the brand, uh, you know. Telling stories around that on their blog through, you know, both um, uh, written and photographs, uh, creating a, a real bomb. And you know, at the time, they didn't. I mean, one reason they did this was because they didn't have money for advertising; they couldn't afford it. Uh, so this was a a sort of a substitute, but it was a brilliant substitute because it it created a a platform for them uh, that. Enabled them to, uh, um, you know, to 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 really directly communicate with people, and this idea of a platform, I think, is is increasingly critical. Uh, a, a narrative platform. Uh, it's something I go into in in um, a fair amount of depth in both the book and the uh, and the course. Essentially, it's the realization that everything you do is part of your story and you can do this deliberately or you can do it accidentally uh, it's obviously a lot more effective if you do it uh, deliberately if you think about what you're doing and if there's uh, you know some reason behind it when warby started opening shops as opposed to you know just being uh, online which is of course how they started when they started opening shops one of the uh, you know, again, um, partners in spade was very much involved in this. One of the things that they did was uh, they used a particular shade of blue. And the um, uh, uh, this uh, blue was, uh, to them, it was sort of blue footed uh, booby blue, there's a, uh, a a species of bird in the Galapagos and other, uh, you know, islands off the uh, in, in the eastern part of the Pacific, uh, called Blue-footed Boobies. And they have this very strange mating dance in which the males um, lift their feet. And the idea is the bluer the foot, the uh, more healthy the bird, and therefore, the more likely uh, to, um, uh, to be successful at, at finding a mate. And uh, so, you know, this was, both an aesthetic choice but it was also a, it was something much more than that it was uh, you know even if it was just implicit even if you never exactly understood you know why the shade of blue was was all over the place um it was part of their story it was uh, you know and it conveyed very deliberately chosen to convey a kind of whimsy that was a key part of their brain and uh um so i think that was um the you know that's a that's a really good example when harry's came along a couple of years later they did something that was also very interesting which is you know with with warby parker they told the origin story time and again and it's all over their website and so forth but they didn't actually focus on the founders with uh harry's um uh, Jeff Rader and Andy Katz Mayfield, the, the two founders of Harry's, became very, very much part of the story, and uh, you know that was uh, that was really interesting. And I think it it speaks to a, a, a growing recognition that people want to know who's behind you know the companies, the products that they buy, and in uh, that. Is you know also a key part of the idea of, of uh, lifestyle brands, which is very much what you know what Warby and Harry's and lots of other companies from Red Bull to to uh, you know um, uh, to to Harley Davidson, uh, you know very different kinds of companies, but they deliberately speak to a certain kind of person. Um, based on a uh you know what's essentially a lifestyle
0: yeah i mean it's, it, it seems to me that you know it if you kind of deconstruct it or post-rationalize it or whatever you want to call call it you sort of you, you sort of take a big look at, at the incumbents the big corporate incumbents and, and you could sort of write a checklist and say well their advertising's kind of an artifice it's it's really you know it, it's really an extreme Often in these extreme cases, it's artificial. Um, The products aren't really differentiated. They're kind of the same as it was a sort of commodity. Uh, And we certainly have no idea who's behind this company. The executives are faceless. They never appear. The only only place they appear is Wall Street. Uh, They're they're closed to their audience. I mean, they're, they're addressing their financial audience, but they're not addressing their customer audience. So you could sort of see immediate chinks in the armor of these large scale incumbents who are just basically, simply put, removed, (laughs) alienated distance from their audience. So you look at any one of these players and their immediate goal is to sort of say, we're not going to do that. (laughs) We're going to do the opposite. You know, we're going to be close. Um, You're going to know who we are. We're going to be much more transparent. we're going to do things that are whimsical uh, and playful that um, these companies wouldn't dare do because their decisions are made by committees of 25. Uh, they never do. They'll never do anything like that. Um, so you sort of develop a playbook, I guess, which is almost the antithesis of the sort of classic uh, corporate playbook. Um, and then you hope you don't become one of them.
1: <laughs> Right, right, exactly. You know, in a way, it's—it's. It's, I mean, it really is analogous to the, uh, you know, to, to the idea of the golden age of television. You have not only a golden age of advertising, but a golden age of brands, where where brands are are free. You know, not only free, they're almost required to have a personality, uh, to uh, you know, to be, uh, you know, at least in certain ways, um, transparent. Uh, and certainly transparent in in terms of like who's behind them. Uh, there's uh, uh, um, there's a book called Authenticity by Joe Pine and James Gilmore, uh, who, who, whom I'm real fans of their writing. And it's uh, you know it's a it's it's a great book because it really uh, you know sort of pulls apart. It analyzes the appeal of authenticity. Uh, you know, over the years, it's it's not like you know millennials um, didn't really invent authenticity, but they certainly have made it uh, kind of a, a key ingredient in a way that it never was before, and uh, or it's certainly not, uh, you know, again in the in the 20th century industrial era, and um, uh, so so I think that's a, a totally fascinating development. I think that, uh, you know, the, the idea that you are, uh, you know, as, as a brand, you're not faceless, you're not corporate, uh, you're not, um, you know, that sort of thing is really increasingly um, both apparent and and critical. A good example, I think, is, uh, is Budweiser. Budweiser has been known for making fabulous Super Bowl ads, uh, in particular over the last uh, uh, 10 12 years or so. And uh, you know, there's there's one in particular that I, I just think is great. Um, it's a uh, it's called Brotherhood. I think it was in 2013, and it shows a young rancher is uh, you know somewhere in missouri uh who is a horse breeder and uh he uh this you know he gets his foal he completely bonds with the foal uh and you know they're they're like a couple practically he's you know the foal gets sick he sleeps in the in the you know on the hay in the barn with him uh you know all kinds of stuff like this and then the inevitably the budweiser truck drives up now, of course, this only works in the U.S., where people are generally aware of the Budweiser Clydesdales, uh, who have been, you know, leading uh, parades for Budweiser since the repeal of Prohibition in 1933. Uh, so, anyway, the um, uh, the the horse, uh, the foal reaches maturity, the Budweiser truck drives up, carries him away, uh, and. Three years pass. This all happens in 60 seconds, of course. Um, three years pass, and uh, the uh, you see the farmer at his kitchen table, and or the rancher, rather, at his kitchen table. He's reading the newspaper. Uh, he sees that there's a Budweiser parade in Chicago. So he gets in his pickup. He drives up to Chicago. He catches the parade. And then as uh, the parade is over, and the horses are being unshackled, his horse catches sight of him in his rearview mirror, uh, you know, where he's parked. And so they're lovingly reunited, if only for a few moments. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just a, a, a brilliant uh, ad, I think, and also a brilliant example of tremendous economy and storytelling. I mean, you know, a, an a amount of information that's conveyed uh, with no dialogue in 60 seconds uh is is truly extraordinary. Um now but it's
0: really interesting but it is really interesting isn't it you know where where we come from you know this is this is a this is a truly you know well constructed as you said um economy of storytelling beautifully told um but it's a story as yeah. in a fiction yeah versus the reality of many of these very contemporary brands, which is, these are our founders. (laughs) These are their story.
1: (laughs) Right, right. This is
0: really the blue.
1: Exactly. This
0: is the real decision we made. So um, I think that's really interesting that, you know, we've got this, um, you know, world of of beautifully constructed fiction, um, but we also have, you know, a consumer who's increasingly demanding who's the real story here you know and yeah. I, and i think and i think you know the pressure what happens what we're getting into now is if you leave the door half open and you say we're going to be transparent we're going to be real the customers push open that door and say okay what's your diversity policy and this is where we're getting into this purpose is right. so strong because the expectation now and the demand is okay you, 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 we're seeing behind the theater curtain you're showing us inside and, and now you've kind of suggested you are transparent and we are expecting that you're going to be fully transparent um and so um i i think that is this really interesting challenge where you, you know it is almost the the hyper reality of you know really tell us <laughs> tell us what you really are about and what you really believe in
1: right um, exactly you know there, there's there's kind of a, a a sequel to that story in a way by the way which is that uh, um after a, a couple of years of that and similar uh you know super bowl ads the head of marketing for AB InBev, the company that uh that bought anheuser-busch which of course makes budweiser uh some years ago the head of marketing f- for them said you know um, those stories are nice but we're not going to use them anymore because they don't sell beer so he you know they tried the opposite uh tactic and that didn't work either uh you know budweiser sales of both budweiser and bud light have been going down dramatically uh for at least 10 years uh sales in the u.s that is and um <clears throat> so So, uh, you know, that led to the question of, well, what is gonna work? And the fact is that nothing is gonna work for a brand like Budweiser because people are less and less interested in it. You know, again, it's a sort of lowest common denominator uh, idea, this is the lowest common denominator kind of beer. You know, it's kind of bland, it's uh, inoffensive and that's not what, uh, increasingly, that's not what people want, certainly not millennials. And uh, so the, uh, you know, what you have there is not really a storytelling um, problem, it's a, it's a product problem, uh, it's a brand problem. And ultimately what AB InBev has done to uh, try to counter that is buy up uh, um, craft beers and, uh, and, and imports. And because those are the categories that are going up and up and up, uh, so you know they've recognized that at least in the U.S., um, you know, there's not a whole lot they can do to, uh, you know, uh, to 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 bring to to bring Budweiser back to the popularity that it once had.
0: Mm, I think that's I think it's a really interesting you know just, it, I think it brings a really interesting point if if you actually go back and through, through the through the last couple of years, um, Mm -hmm. looking at InBev, um, Wyden Kennedy, the Dilly Dilly Bud Light campaign was massively successful. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was really, it was almost drawing upon narratives like it really drew upon Game of Thrones
1: Uh um,
0: and, and, and did a sort of spoofed it. So it was almost saying, okay, we're, we're, you know, we've had a ton of problems with our advertising gaining attention and products. The only way to compete is to compete with the top content, and and so they did this whole series. Um, there was sort of a comedic, a little bit Monty Python um, Holy Grail uh, meets Game of Thrones. <laughs> um, and they got fans and they got this dilly-dilly phrase into the intercultural into, cultural, into the culture uh-huh. um but it sort of demands that you use sort of some kind of almost hollywood factory to keep producing these hits um which has tremendous amount of risk you know that that you're not going to be a, you know you're not going to be able to do it every time you're not going to be able to hit the ball out of the park every time um and whereas the you know what you said where it's a product issue let's go find imports let's go and create buy craft breweries let's go and do the other things um is uh, is, is 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 a more in some ways viable uh way of, of of approaching the challenge um so yeah i think i think that takes us on to the kind of the next the the, the sort of chapter which is you know, which everyone has said for the last ten years, which is you don't actually control your brand, your customers do, and and then you sort of let open the floodgates, and now it's we're in a TikTok world, where um, or a meme world where you know just y- you don't really you don't really control that much. You, you know, you you just you let these things out, and people play with them, and if they're good. Uh, and people are interested, they play with them a lot, and this stuff gets, you know, amplified. Um, right. So yeah. mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Okay. So yeah, I think you'd you know, you have you got a lot going on. I mean, y- y- yes, you have, you know, you want a strategy, yes, you want um a, a construct around your narrative, and you want all these things in place, but ultimately. You know, I think the Dilly Dilly example is a good one where where it sort of shows where, you know, you have this yin and yang, you know, you have um, a powerful idea, but you you let it loose and you want people to play with it. You kind of, it becomes an invitation.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And I think that's something of a challenge for like these real brands. It's like, okay, how much more story is there, you know? uh, in the reality, you know, uh, you have to keep, you know. I, 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 I mean, how many? I mean, the untuck it. Is it called untuck or whatever shirt? And mm. I, I, I see this guy, and it's you know, this is classic. This is the founder story. You know, he's talking to camera. He's the real founder. He's you know a real New Yorker. He's like, i um, you know, I was sick of having shirts that didn't fit, and I wanted to untuck them. So you know what I did? I solved the problem. You know and that's why we have these shirts so it's kind of like you know i'm a hero i mean the story narrative is there's a problem out there that needs solving and i'm the hero that solves it and it seems to me there's a lot of that is kind of a a p- pretty familiar construct for um you know it could be a steve jobs you know it could be right you know people were making phones or making mp3 players they just weren't any good and i've come along and i'm solving this problem and that's why my shirts are great or my phones are great. Um, but then you, 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 okay, what's the you, you know, it's it's it it's it I think the bus example is an interesting one because you, you sort of suddenly find a way to 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 romance it. How can you because cause reality gets can get dull very quickly. Um so you need to add. You need to spice that reality and add that whimsy and that's probably why personality and brand character are so important because with those things they allow you to be more playful and take you away from sort of the pure 60 minutes docu style um you know here's our earnest worker working in a factory you know applying their craftsmanship to uh to, to the brewing process, there's only so much you can take of that.
1: <laughs> right, right, exactly.
0: So I think that's the, the, the really interesting piece is, you know, taking that important narrative structure that's built around reality and being able to, um, uh, you know, to, to play with it a little bit. Um, the mission to Mars, I don't know if you know that um, mm. Lockheed Martin, they took a bus.
1: Yes, yes, right, right. No, I, 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 I do know that. You know, as, as you probably know, I started this awards program at Columbia, at the Digital Storytelling Lab there a few years ago, and 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 that was one of our, uh, one of our very first, uh, um, you know, award winners. It was a, you know, totally fascinating uh, uh, thing that they did, where they took the school bus and. Converted it into a you know sort of group virtual reality experience, uh, and uh, and took a bunch of school kids to Mars you know virtually, you know quite an amazing uh, quite an amazing project.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting. I was maybe kind of uh, in the interest of time to get to the to the um, wrapping up. I was going to ask you a question about, um, you know, with these, uh, the storytelling awards, one of the things I notice is there's this really interesting mix of art and commerce. And I wonder what commerce could learn from the art. Um, I think, you know, often people responsible for brand storytelling say, you know, our biggest problem is we don't have complete freedom because we've got to slug a brand at the end or the brand has to be integrated in here. Uh, and the artists go, well, we've got complete freedom to create whatever we want. You know, we've got buying canvas. I wondered if there's anything you've learned about um, what art, uh, what commerce can learn from art uh, in, in some of those examples uh, over the years.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a very, very interesting question. You know, one of the key ideas behind this program, it's, you know, we call it the Digital Dozen. It's the Breakthroughs in Storytelling Awards. And we, we picked 12 uh, examples over the uh, from the past year. Uh, to uh, sort of highlight, and one of the key ideas behind this is that we don't have any categories because I feel like you know digital erases categories. At the very least, it blurs categories, and uh, there's there's no point in trying to keep them alive. And in fact, by sort of eliminating them, it, by throwing everything together, whether it's uh, you know um entertainment or advertising marketing um you know or or journalism or just pure art uh you are uh, you know everybody's trying to figure out what to do with these tools with all these new tools that we have and there's a lot that uh, you know can be learned uh you know by one group looking at what other people are doing with it uh you know in terms of uh you know in terms of what um advertisers or brands can learn from uh, you know from art i think it's um you know it's not entirely clear but it certainly suggests that a lot of it has to do with personality and this comes back to you know what uh, to personality and to emotion and this comes back to what uh you know to the idea of neuroscience and what neuroscientists have been discovering about storytelling uh, you know it this goes back quite some time but it used to be that in especially in the US uh, you know people in cognitive psychology or neuroscience uh, were very much you know they didn't Think much of the—they didn't think anything of the idea that stories were important, that they were worth um, exploring, that they were worth studying. And there's been a, a, a complete 180 on that in the last few years, uh, last say 15 years or so. But um, uh, the most important, you know, takeaway is emotion. You know, the realization that we are not. Um, you know that we are not rational creatures. Uh, you know that that's just not how our brains work. And for the longest time, that was the you know the the like the center, the very center of the idea of uh, you know communicating anything about a brand. Uh, you know the this idea that well it had to be. Uh, you know, it had to be beneficial for for some reason and we need to highlight why it's beneficial. And this is, you know, it's true today. This is, you know, especially of tech products. I mean, tech products are an excellent example. You look at, uh, you know, Apple and they show people having fun with their products and, uh, you know, but uh, too many startups in particular, are focused on, you know, well, this is what we've done, and it's so, uh, you know, powerful, and uh, you know, we'll we'll spout off some tech specs to you, and you'll want to rush out and buy it, which, of course, is total bullshit. Uh, so, you know, this this idea that uh, that we are rational creatures, um, you know, rationality is uh, an aspirational goal for us and uh, you know one that's um, frankly never going to be fully realized and uh, the um, understanding the realization that that uh, in order to sell something you have to appeal to people emotionally and you have to you know in order to make people want something um you know whether you're selling to them exactly or 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 in some other way uh you have to appeal to people emotionally and Uh, You know, I think if there's anything that I mean, it's a very interesting question, but if there's anything that brands can learn from art in in this area, it's that, you know, it's that there really are no rules. Um, It's that, you know, you look at something like um, Punch Drunk, uh, the uh, immersive theater company in London that's behind Sleep No More, which until the pandemic was, uh, you you know, a, a a immersive theater project that ran in New York for uh, you know nearly 10 years with a, you know with no advertising and sold out every night. Um, it was you know the idea that there's no proscenium arch. there's no, uh, there's no boundary between the experience and the um, the viewer. And the viewer is not a viewer. the viewer is a participant. And, uh, you know, the more, that, uh, the, the, the more that you can embrace the idea, I think, the more successful you're going to be. Uh, you know, another example is uh, Yayoi Kusama, the, you know, tremendously popular now uh, Japanese artist um, whose, uh, um, you know, immersive, um, uh, you know, room environments, Uh, had people, you know, waiting in line in the rain outside art galleries for hours and hours in order to spend 45 seconds, literally just 45 seconds uh, inside this room. Uh, And, uh, you know, again, it's, you know, there's no proscenium arts. There's no frame around the picture. There's something that you can, you know, directly walk into and experience. And, uh, you know, I think that's uh, just an absolutely critical aspect of storytelling that's as it's evolving today. And it's driven by technology, but it's not always uh, you know a technological um, uh, process, uh, you know, it, or not in an obvious way anyway. Um, you know certainly, you know many of the punch junk projects, you know some of the more recent ones are technological but but uh something like sleep no more is not at all it's just a series of a huge series of rooms and a enormous loft building and you can wander around and you know pull open drawers and you know look at things and investigate and follow actors around and you know things happen at random and so forth Um, so you know I i think that's what's what's really critical is you have to you have to not have barriers. You have to be as direct as possible uh, in your communications with uh, you know whoever you want to, uh, whoever you want to communicate with for whatever reason.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think I think you know, ostensibly it's it, it the challenge is pretty clear. It, it's the most successful stuff um, appeals. Emotionally, and I mean, you can write that as a sentence, but um, you, you kind of have to feel it yourself, um, which is very, very hard to explain. Uh, it, it doesn't fit nicely into a five-point uh, bullet point memo. Um, it, it's, uh, it, it's something you feel, and, and you know, it's a very much an intangible, whereas the corporate world works with tangibles. It, it works with rational. It, mm-hmm. it works right. with, uh, we have a, you know, there's this um, very great, I think it should be shown at your <laughs> storytelling <laughs> uh, course, which is the Stephen Colbert wheat thins um, parody of a brief um, where he just basically deconstructs the client's brief and, and makes it appear just completely ridiculous because there are so many mandatories and stipulations about what you can and can't do. that. Uh-huh. It, there is basically no freedom to create anything of any interest. Um, and so when you're in an environment which is being ruled by committees and you have to explain yourself, um, it's very hard to explain the intangible. And so you, you you default to what the system knows and the system knows rational. And it's a bunch of testing and it's a bunch of things like brand recall and main message. Um and so the fight is are you you know um you know fernando at burger king is a great poster child poster boy for the fight against the big corp to do really good work um he had to sort of single-handedly take on the institution um to get it to understand that um you could actually have an ad with a, a moldy burger or set a burger king door on fire which should have been um total uh a no-no you know
1: right right
0: so yeah it takes an individual um with power to 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 understand that emotion can deliver the business results and can transcend the rational so um, let's let's end up with just just give us a quick pitch for the book when is it out is it out now how do people find it etc cetera, etc cetera.
1: yes right well it's uh, yes it's out now uh, it just came out' It's published on uh, uh, June 29th and um, uh, it's you know it's it's basically about the narrative mode of thought it's about um, you know understanding Uh, what stories are and why stories work and why they're important and why they're effective. And, uh, you know, as I say, with me, it really began as, uh, you know, as as sort of an an outcropping, so to speak, of the um, strategic storytelling um, seminar that I lead at Columbia for executive education. Um, And this idea of narrative thinking as, the opposite of you know rational thinking, uh, but uh, you know though it's a, it's opposite to it, it's just as important. Uh, sometimes, uh, in in many cases, more important. Certainly, more important if you're trying to change people's uh, attitudes and opinions.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. Um, really interesting discussion, and. Um Hopefully I'll uh, we'll get this up uh, live and uh, on the various places where everyone gets their favorite po- uh, podcasts very shortly.
1: Great, terrific, thank you. Great. And really enjoyed talking with you, that's great.
0: Thanks so much, have a great day.
1: Okay, you too, bye-bye.
0: This is your host, Ed Colton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.